Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. It is so good to be together today. If you're joining us online, we are glad that you are here as well. William Tyndale was born in 1494, just outside of Gloucestershire, England. And by all accounts, he was simply brilliant. He spoke seven different languages. He was trained at Oxford and then Cambridge. And in 1515, he joined the priesthood. Now, if you're familiar about the sort of movement going on in the world at the time, specifically amongst followers of Jesus, you know that the Protestant Reformation was just a few years away from breaking forth, that in 1516, the scriptures had been translated into Greek and then printed for the very first time as a whole in Greek. And in 1522, Martin Luther translated that Bible into German for the very first time. And William Tyndale decided to make it his life's mission to translate the scriptures into English. Now that wasn't exactly adopted as a good thing by the Roman church at the time. And so Tyndale had to flee from England to Germany to begin this translation work. He started it in 1524, finished it in 1525, and about that time of writing the script, translating the scriptures, he said, my pains, my poverty, my exile out of my natural country and bitter absence from my friends, my hunger, my thirst, my cold, the great danger I faced wherever I went, and finally, the innumerable hard and sharp fightings which I endured. By 1526, he had finished the New Testament translation into English, had 3,000 copies of it printed, and he and his friends started to smuggle it back into England. At that time, if you would have been caught in England with an English copy of the scriptures, you would have been put to death, and many people were. So the question becomes... Why in the world would this brilliant mind give his life to translating the scriptures? Well, why would you bleed for this book? See, uh, in Tyndale's day and time, the church held all the power because it held the scriptures to themselves. Scriptures were primarily in Latin in England, and most of the common people were unable to read it. And the priests and the Pope knew, if we control the scriptures, we control the people. It was a power play. They wanted to prevent people from being able to engage. And it was William Tyndale who brazenly said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare me or many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. Oh, Billy Tyndale for the win. I mean, like, I am guessing he didn't get on the Pope's Christmas card list. These were fighting words. He goes, hey, listen, Pope. With all due respect, if I'm able to complete this project of translating the scriptures into English, the guy that's working in the field is going to know more of the Bible than you do. And he made it his life's work. He was obsessed with translating 
this work into English. Did you know that the Bible is illegal to have in 52 countries still today? So will you just get out your Bible for a moment? And if you have it on your phone, you can just hold your phone or your iPad or whatever. But will you get a copy of the scriptures in front of you? I just, I just want you to hold it and I want you to look down at it. And I want you to ask yourself this question, what is it that I'm holding? How would you describe this book? What type of, of emotion does it stir in you, if any? See, some people would look at the Bible and they would go, oh, the Bible is, and they'd fill in the blank with, archaic. The Bible is oppressive. The, the Bible's violent. The Bible's contradictory. The Bible's been used for all sorts of evils in the world. Uh, some people would echo what Aleister Crowley, the atheist, wrote, where he said, one would go mad if one took the Bible seriously, but you have to be mad to take the Bible seriously anyway. And yet others would hold this book and they would say, this book is beautiful. This book is sacred. This book is holy. I mean, some people would hold this, this book, and if this, is, if this is you, I would just invite you to hold it in the air this morning. Some people would hold this book, and they would say, this book has changed my life. If that's you, just, just hold it up. If that's you. Yeah, me too. Me too. Regardless of what you think about the Bible, let's just start objectively this morning and come to terms with the fact the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. It does pretty good on the New York Times bestseller list every single year, and it's the most influential book ever compiled. But it might do us well to start off where we addressed this last week, but to just acknowledge that while we often call this the good book, that's a little bit of a misnomer, because the Bible isn't just a book. It's a collection of writings. It might be even better to consider it to be a library. <laughs> it's a library of historical writings, of poems, of letters, of apocalyptic accounts. It is 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years on three different continents with one central message, Jesus. Jesus. And about this book, Charles Colson wrote the Bible Banned, burned, and beloved. More widely read and more frequently attacked than any other book in history. Generations of intellectuals have attempted to discredit it. Dictators of every age have outlawed it and executed those who've read it. Yet soldiers carry it into battle believing it more powerful than their weapons. And fragments of it smuggled into solitary prison cells have transformed ruthless killers into gentle Saints. It was 1534 that Tyndale decided he wanted to translate not just the New Testament, but the entire Bible. So catch this, he went out and learned Hebrew in order to do it. Bravo, Billy Tyndale, okay? Learned Hebrew, translated the entire scriptures into English, finished in 1534. In 1535, he was captured by the authorities, put in prison. In 1536, he was tried for heresy for translating the Bible into English. And in October of 1536, he was tethered to the stake, strangled to death, and then lit on fire to burn in front of all the people. 
And before he died, the very last words that he uttered were, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. Less than a century later, it was Tyndale's work that the people who came up with the translation of the King James Bible used as their foundation. God had moved and God had opened eyes. I mean, what book would you bleed for? I mean, really, what, what book would you bleed for? From the beginning of our church, over these 82 plus years, we've had this conviction that the word of God, the scriptures are beautiful, magnificent, and worth giving our lives for. In fact, did you know that over the years we've supported numerous missionaries who made it their goal to translate this book into the language of the people they were ministering to? Even right now, we support a couple named Roxanne and Cliff Olson who are working in Papua New Guinea to translate the Bible into Guamawama, which is really fun to say. They're about 80% done. You can pray for them. And just this last month, our elders moved to give 9,000 Bibles to purchase 3,000 Bibles that will be smuggled into Iran so that believers in Iran can learn the scriptures and tell more people about Jesus. Why are we doing that? I mean, why do we gather together and why do we, why do we study this book together? Because we believe that this book is not just worth bleeding for, but it's worth living from. It's not just worth bleeding for, it's worth living from. As King David would so eloquently write, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. It, it guides me. It shows me where to go. It shows me how to respond. Today we're continuing our series, a two-week short little series to begin 2022 that we're calling The Good Book. An oft-used moniker to talk about the scriptures, to talk about the Bible. That, but that begs the question, why in the world is this book good? Why in the world is this book worth bleeding for and living from? To answer that question, I'd invite you to open to the passage of scripture that Zach read for us already, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And as you're opening there, let me give you just a little bit of context. 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul from a Roman prison, most people think, to his young protege, a pastor named Timothy, who was located in Ephesus. Timothy was going through a pretty difficult time. He was a bit timid and he was a bit frustrated with the way that things were going, persecution that was going on. And 2 Timothy as a whole is a call for perseverance in the gospel in the face of persecution in the world. And it's this section of scripture where the Apostle Paul almost turns into like a coach where he's like trying to buoy Timothy up, trying to encourage him and strengthen him to keep putting one foot in front of the other as he pastors this church in Ephesus. And in verse 10, listen to the way he began. He said this, You, however, followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Lyconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Quick time out. Um, I just want to point out that Paul just killed your best life now. 
right? I mean, if our idea is that, hey, if we can devote ourselves to following Jesus, and if we devote ourselves to the scriptures, well, then we're going to live an easy life. Do you know where you can't find that idea? The Bible. You can't find it in there. No, no. Like, Paul is very clearly laying out that the life of discipleship is going to often be subversive. It's going to be going against the stream of culture. It's going to be a challenge, and it's going to bring about, not might, will bring about persecution. And he goes on to say in verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Verse 14, and here's his sort of coach pep talk to Timothy. But for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Time out. See, Paul wants to connect the validity of the message of the scriptures to the character of the people who taught it to him. And if you go back and you look in the verse 5 of chapter 1, 2 Timothy, you'll see that it was his mom and his grandma who laid the foundation for Timothy to stand on, Paul would say, with boldness, with boldness. Verse 15, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I love this little nuance that Paul draws out. He says these sacred writings, which we would consider to be the Bible, Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say the Scriptures are able to save you. That's not what he says. What he says is the Scriptures can point you to the one, capital O, who can save you. His name is what? Jesus. They, they can make you wise for salvation and they can lead you to the one who can save, whose name is Jesus. And I love the fact that he says even the, the Old Testament, which he's referring to here, is pointing to Jesus. It's a story about Jesus. And that's what Jesus said as he was walking with some religious pilgrims, some sojourners traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus after Jesus had been crucified. Listen to what he says. It says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them all the, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a part of that Bible study? Oh my goodness, Jesus going through the scriptures, all the scriptures, the things concerning him. See friends, the point of it all is a person. All scripture points to one person whose name is Jesus. And according to Paul to Timothy, Jesus is the one who saves. But remember, he's writing to a persecuted pastor who he wants to continue to encourage to put one foot in front of the other. And here's his point. His point is that Scripture points us to the way of salvation amid suffering. Scripture reminds us that God is up to something. And it grounds us in the story of his salvific work throughout history. Scripture allows us to have one foot in this world and one foot in the world to come and to walk faithfully in both, believing that God is up to something. That word salvation literally means deliverance. Make us wise for God's deliverance, both physically and spiritually. 
And if you read through this book, it's the story. This book, the good book, continually tells a God who saves. A God who rescues the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and calls them into the promised land, salvation. A God who works through the prophet Elijah to heal and to restore salvation. A God who declares through the prophet Isaiah that one day God will make all things new. New heaven, new earth, coming salvation. A story of Jesus coming, living, dying, being buried and resurrected. And the declaration that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in him. Salvation. It's a compilation of writings that are designed to be our anchor point in a world that's often painful. And when we neglect the scriptures, friends, we do so to our own peril. And this isn't designed to make anybody feel guilty. No, no, actually, just the opposite. To, To paint a picture for you of the life that Jesus is inviting you into. When we forget about the salvation that comes through Jesus, we try to erect our own self-salvation projects, and we end up getting our lives way off track. But the scriptures call us back to salvation in Jesus. They call us back to the love and grace of the Father, the story that God is telling. Over um, our Christmas, New Year's break, I watched a documentary entitled The Alpinist. I don't know, by by the lack of, oh, um, I'm guessing not many of you watched it. it's a documentary about these, one of these, these crazy guys that climbs rock faces without any ropes. Just the kind of documentary that you sort of watch and your hands get a little bit sweaty, your palms are sweaty, and you're like, oh my goodness, why would you do that? And as we're watching this, I just got the sense that, man, there are many in our day who feel like they're living exactly like that. Climbing up the side of a, mountain cliff, a mountain face, and man, one sort of, one bad move, and they are just going to crumble. And so fear often overtakes us. Anxiety shapes the decisions we make. And for the follower of Jesus, one of the things that the scripture does is it reminds us that we have an anchor point. Our lives are tethered to the God who loves us, who's good towards us, who died for us and rose for us and has given us salvation in Jesus. And when we go to the scriptures, we are reminded of that reality. We are tethered to the God who created us, died for us, and saves us. It constantly, scripture does, constantly brings us back to our destiny. And Paul wants this struggling pastor named Timothy to come to terms with that. And here's what he says next. He says, and all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Now, really quick, let me point out that most of the time when the scriptures refer to itself, they refer to itself as scripture. Now, sometimes it will use terms like the law and the prophets. Very few times when the Bible talks about itself, does it refer to itself as the word of God, which is often the way we refer to the Bible. Most of the time when the Bible says the word of God, what it's talking about either is Jesus, see John chapter 1, or it's talking about words that God has quite literally spoken either to somebody or through one of his prophets. 
So when I talk about the scriptures, you'll, you'll hear me often refer to the scriptures as scripture rather than the Bible or the word of God, although that's a fine way to look at them. But one of the things I want to do is constantly call us to take the scriptures on their own terms rather than on ours, which is why I'll use that term most often. But here's what Paul says next. He says, all scripture is breathed out, say these next two words with me, by God. Those four words in the English are actually one word in the Greek. It's the word theonoustos. Will you say that with me? Theonoustos. And it is a word, drumroll, that Paul made up in order to get his point across. There's no... um, record of this word existing before this writing in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and most people would attribute it to the Apostle Paul. So you have to go to the etymology of the word to actually figure out what it means. It's two Greek words put together, thea, which means God, and nuo, which means spirit, or breath, or even like energy, right? So breathed out by God is a really, really good translation, but the book that you hold in your hand had its inception in God and is God's breath put to paper. I mean, take that in for just a moment. And that can be a bit misleading, I'll admit. There's some ways that we look at God breathed and it gets us off course a little bit. I mean, sometimes we think that what God breathed means is that this book just sort of fell out of the sky right? Not true, right? It was written over 1,500 years, 40 different authors, all that, right? It didn't just fall out of the sky. In fact, um, that's what the Mormons believe about their holy book, the Book of Mormon. I don't know if you're aware of that, but their conviction is that Joseph Smith was directed by the angel Moroni to go find these golden tablets in the hills of New York. He went, dug them out, translated them into what they know as their holy scripture, okay? Now, Ironically, or incidentally, or however you want to look at it, those golden tablets have never been found. So do with that what you will. But I point this out to say, that is not what followers of Jesus believe about the Bible. That is not what we believe about how the Bible came into existence. Here's a second thing God breathed doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that scripture is devoid of any human contribution. In fact, you only need to read the good book in order to figure out that there are people who are contributing. Dr. Luke says, I have done my research. I have talked to people. My goal has been to compile the most accurate account that I could of what happened in the life of Jesus. You have John writing, John chapter 20, who says, the reason I put this book together the way I did was so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing you might find salvation and life in him. You have passages in the Bible like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. We're going to study 1 Corinthians over the course of next year, so I'm not going to dive into this too much today. But listen to what Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Well, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. And beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. God breathed. Here's my question. Does God remember? 
Not a trick question. Does God remember? Absolutely. So how is Paul being carried along by the Holy Spirit and he doesn't remember? Here's my short answer to that. Because he didn't remember. And the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God wanted people in Corinth to know that it's not about who baptized you, but it's about who died for you. So therefore, he preserved and guided the words that Paul wrote, even to say, I don't remember who I baptized. When we talk about these scriptures being God-breathed, here's what we mean. That God carried people along by the power of his spirit to give his world the exact testimony he wanted them to have about his character knowledge of redemption through Jesus and his design for how to flourish in his world. Which is exactly where Paul goes next. Listen to what he wrote. He said, and all scripture is theonoustos, is breathed out by God and, will you say this with me, church? Profitable. Anybody have an NIV translation with them? What word? What word's used? Instead of profitable. Useful. Useful. I like the um, nuance of the word useful a little bit better than profitable because it puts it clearly, scripture, clearly in this utilitarian functional category. Because I think that's what Paul wants to do. He wants to take scripture out of a primarily or only spiritual category and put it in an everyday category. So he says, yeah, it's really useful. Like, think of things that are useful. Um, a dishwasher, useful. A washing machine, useful. A coffee maker to the glory of God, <laughs> useful, right? Your car, you'd probably agree that your car is useful. See, things that are useful change the way that you live your everyday life. They have a utilitarian function to them that directly changes the way that you live. And that's exactly what Paul wants to do with Scripture. He wants you to view this collection of writings in a way that changes the way you live your everyday life. And so here's what he says. Scripture it gives us practical instruction for abundant living. Practical instruction for abundant living. But he doesn't just stop there and say, well, scripture's really useful. He goes on to tell us how it's useful, and he points out four things, four ways that scripture is useful. And so we're going to spend the next few minutes just walking through each of these. And what I want you to do as we read each of these, think to yourself, is scripture useful to me in that way? Here's what Paul wrote. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for, say it with me, teaching. And also for learning, right? And I think the question that I had initially was, okay, well, yes, scripture is, is useful for teaching. Indeed, that is one of its main functions for the church gathered together, that we will be instructed through the scriptures and in what the scriptures teach. But what are we supposed to learn as we go to the scriptures? Paul actually answered that question when he wrote to the church at Rome. And listen to what he said. He said, for whatever was written, he's, gonna be ta he's talking about scripture. You can see that down in this verse. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So that we might hear it and that we might move in line with it. That through endurance 
and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Oh, guys, that is so good. So good. What does scripture want to teach us? It wants to teach us, number one, to endure. As if to say, life isn't always going to be easy. But you can be the kind of person who maintains your integrity and your character under pressure. You can be the kind of person who doesn't give in to every wind of fear or anxiety, but you continue to follow Jesus and share the good news with the people around you. You can endure. And every time we open up scripture, God wants to teach us endurance. The second thing he wants to teach us is encouragement. That something in our heart might go, thank you, Jesus. You're good to me. You're present with me. You're here to do a little bit of gospel math from this text. Every time we go to the scriptures, they want to teach us endurance and encouragement that lead to hope. So, scripture's helpful because it, it grounds us in hope. It grounds us in hope. Hope is the confidence of future good. And as we study the scriptures together and learn the scriptures together, we get to see the stories of God's past faithfulness, of his goodness and his grace, and our feet are firmly planted on the fact that his future is good for us and we can have confidence because he has been faithful in the past. Emmanuel Faith. Through the scriptures, we learn that God is in control, that he is moving history towards his appointed end, that he is faithful, that he is victorious, and that through him, we can be victorious as well. And whenever we open up our Bible, whether it's on a Sunday morning together like we're doing now, or whether it's in a Tuesday morning when you wake up or a Thursday evening before you go to bed, Jesus wants to teach you to be the kind of person of endurance and encouragement that you might have confidence in future good. Second, here's what Paul wrote. He said, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable. It's useful for teaching, for reproof, and for correction. Now, we're going to address these in one point because really these two ideas are two sides of the same coin. Reproof is a, a calling out. It's the way that God uses the scriptures to tell us that we're wrong. Anybody ever had that happen before? Let me just gently say to you that God's goal through the scriptures is not just to tell you that you're wonderful. It's not just to pat you on the back if you're living in sin. It's actually to, the love of God is displayed in his calling out our sin, reproof, conviction, in order to call us forward in righteousness, correction. So, so here's the question that I think we need to wrestle with. When we read the scriptures, do we read the scriptures in a way where we allow them to read us? Do we read the scriptures in dialogue with God so that he can call us out and lead us forward? That like a surgeon, the Holy Spirit would use the scriptures to dig into our life and to cut out the sin, to cut out the deceit, to cut out the untruthfulness in order to lead us into righteousness and joy and hope. Do you read the scriptures in that way? 
That's what Paul's saying the intent of them is. Let me give you just a quick example. I was reading along with our Bible reading plan for our church, which just plug, plug. If you're not involved in it yet, it's not too late. We're only seven chapters into Matthew, but I would highly encourage you, um, jump on in the YouVersion app. It's just so fun to see people commenting and interacting. But as I was reading Matthew chapter six and reading about anxiety, I just sensed the spirit of the Lord say, Ryan, you've got this like low-grade anxiousness. What's up with that? Will you read scripture in a way that you let it read you? Um, We've developed these how to read the Bible, little note cards that are really handy dandy. You can grab one at the welcome desk on your way out. But really what we wanna invite you to do is four things when you open the scriptures. We wanna make this really easy. So we're gonna invite you to read and following along with a plan is a great way to do that. To engage with scripture, which means that you ask questions. Wow, why is that word repeated? Or what's the context going on of why Paul is encouraging Timothy in this way? Or I wonder what that word means. And there are great resources out there that are free that will help you answer those questions. Engage scripture. Don't just read right through it. And then sit. Sit with Jesus. I can't tell you how many Bible study methodologies I've come across that don't involve Jesus. I mean... Observation, interpretation, application, I'm all for all of those. I just want to invite the Spirit of God to illuminate the scriptures of God. Amen? So let's carve out space for that. And then finally, that we don't just hear scripture, but we obey, that we trust, that we move forward in doing what God has prompted us to do through his scriptures. I hope you look at this and go, rest, read, engage, sit, trust. I can do that. And you can. And if you do, when you do, it will change your life. Here's what Paul says next. He says that scripture is profitable or useful for teaching, for reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man or person of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. Equipped for every good work. Did you know that there are good works that Jesus has designed for you to walk into? That's not my idea. That that comes directly from the scriptures where the apostle Paul will write to the church at Ephesus and say, for we, for you are his workmanship, his poem, his song created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. That means that God has set the table He has laid out the circumstances so that you could walk into the good that he designed you to be a part of. The family that you're a part of, not an accident. The neighborhood you live in, not an accident. The job that you have, not an accident. The neighborhood that you're a part of, not an accident. It is all set up by God so that you might step into the good works that he has called you to step into. But they're easy to miss, aren't they? They're easy to walk right past. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is, oh, when you saturate your soul in scripture, your eyes are opened to the good that Jesus has designed you to walk in. Yeah, that's why scripture is useful. Because it prepares us for good. It prepares us for purpose. I can't tell you how many people have told me, reading scripture in the morning changes the way my entire day goes. 
Anybody want to testify? Just by choice. Yeah, I mean, reading scripture in the morning, change it. You know what they're saying? They're just affirming that Paul was right. They're prepared for the good that God has for them to step into. I don't know about you, but as I look at this and I go, scripture is useful because it grounds us in hope. I want some more of that. Anybody else? That it calls us out and leads us forward. I I want more holiness, righteousness, and and therefore joy in my life. I want to let go of the things that are bringing me down this year. Who's with me? I I, want to be prepared for good. I I don't want to walk past the good that God has designed me to live in. I want to step into it with boldness. So let me challenge you. Let me challenge you. What if, what if this year, no, no guilt about past years. What if this year was a year where you said, God, I want to chase after you and your presence through your scriptures. What if this year you said, Let, let's read scripture. What if this year you said, let's memorize scripture. What if this year you said, let's study scripture. Let, let's, let's get in a group that studies scripture together and encourages one another. But here's my challenge for you. Don't just read scripture. Live it. Live it. An American evangelist was ministering in Vietnam in 1971. And he had this young interpreter who came alongside of him to interpret what he was saying to the people in Vietnam. His name was Hein Pham. And Pham was a faithful interpreter and follower of Jesus. And when Vietnam fell to communism, the leaders rounded up all of the people that had encouraged and participated with the Americans and they threw him in jail. And Pham was given one of the lowest jobs on the totem pole in jail. He every night had to clean out the latrines in the jail. And one night as he was cleaning, he saw a little piece of paper that had just a little bit of what he thought to be English on it in the latrine. Got it, picked it up, put it in his pocket, and after he was finished, went back to his room. And carefully, by cover of darkness that night, he cleaned off that little piece of paper. And what he saw written on it was Romans chapter 8. He went back and he told the captain in the little jail he was in that he would volunteer to do the most grotesque job of cleaning out the latrines every single night. Because here's what he realized. One of these soldiers is using scripture as toilet paper and he's throwing it into the latrine. And so every night he would go and he would take these little parchments, put them in his pocket, go back to his room, clean him off. And he had this little collection in his jail cell of scripture. And I was thinking about that this week of of men like William Tyndale and people like Hein Pham who would say, oh oh, God, your, your precepts are like honeycomb. They're dripping. I just, I just want them. And, and they, they would say things like, you revive my soul. You revive my soul. And I just started to wonder, gosh, I can get the Bible on like every single device I own. Not only that, but I can get 
hundreds of translations on every device I own. And I just started to wonder, is the ubiquitous nature of the Bible for us in the West eroding our conviction of its value and its beauty and its majesty and its ability to change our lives? I just wanna call us out, friends, to say, may this year be the year where we say, gosh, the, the good, the good book is worth bleeding for and for us, it's worth living from. This book, this collection of God-breathed writings, beautiful, sacred, useful, and may the Spirit illuminate them in our soul that we might live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, your word is like honey on our lips, water for our soul. Lord, I pray that you'd make us more hungry. God, that you would stir us out of any sort of discontent if it's there. God, I pray against the enemy's voice of guilt and shame, this book that people bled over, you've let sit on your shelf and gather dust, how dare you? We rebuke that voice as being from the enemy. And Jesus, we know that you wanna lead us forward in life. And so today could be a new day. Give us vision, give us intention to walk with you and to long to hear your voice. And Lord, I pray that this year, whether it's through the read through this, reading through the New Testament that we're doing together as a church or some other way that your people who call Emmanuel Faith Church your church home would not be malnourished, but would be people who long to read your word, to study your word, to memorize your word so that we might live your word. Do a new work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.